0: Hello and welcome to Broadcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host Francesco Colosimo,
1: and I'm your co-host Laura Muñoz.
0: And I and we are here with James Braden. Thanks for being here, James. My pleasure. So, James, tell us what you do. What are you studying at Western? So, to get it
2: started, I'm currently studying um, for my master's of. Uh, engineering science in the department of water resource engineering and environmental engineering at Western. And our research focuses around flooding and um, natural disasters and trying to prevent future
0: flooding events. Amazing. Amazing. So tell us more, how do you do that? How do you kind of predict these, these events? So
2: there are a few methods that we can do to actually study flooding in um, real life scenarios. The first way we look at, or the first thing we look at is the production of hydrologic models, which focuses on how water reacts with the earth. We can then take from these hydrologic models and produce hydraulic models, which then allow us to produce flood depths, flood flows, that give us a better idea on what infrastructure and what areas are in particular are more vulnerable to flooding.
1: So what do, what do you mean when you talk about hydrological and what's the difference between those two?
2: That's a really good question. The main difference is hydrologic focuses on rainfall. It focuses on where the water is coming from and how it reacts with the earth in terms of whether the water will go through the soil, whether it will flow off to the nearest river, um, whether it will even just go into a reservoir, whereas hydrolog- or hydraulic modeling focuses on the actual water that's now located within the river, and flow speeds, um, water depths, and where the water will then flow off to.
1: That's interesting. So the first uh, thing that came for me to mind when you were talking about these models is like, do you have to go to the places where the floods occur so you know Mm -hmm. that those are susceptible areas, and then you take uh, like measurements and you inform your model or or you just take data that other people have taken before to inform inform your models? How does it work?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. So it kind of combines the two together. So to start off, what we do is we call a design flood where we produce a 100-year flood event, a 200-year flood event. And what this is, is it's just a, so for example, 100-year flood event is an Average storm that is expected to occur or has a chance of 1% to occur in any given year. And it's said 100 years because based off that 1%, it's likely to occur every 100 years. So that's where we start off where we do a design flood. And for these, we have design hydrographs where we get a projected rainfall event that we can populate our hydrologic models to then understand the volume of water we will be dealing with for the given flood event. We can also replicate historical events. And one of the events that I've replicated in the past was the 2013 Alberta flooding, where we took the flows from a local um, dam or a local hydraulic station that measures water flow. And we can input it on various softwares to recreate the actual flooding event and then compare the two and use one as a base or as a base to kind of go off of. And it actually provides a very good validation technique.
0: Yeah, no, that's really interesting. That last part where you mentioned, you know, incorporating past events um, as data into this, I guess, working model or this evolving model. Um, so I'm wondering, does incorporating past events does that make it generalizable to other places? Like, how does that work? Like you mentioned, mm-hmm. you incorporated, you know, some some information from Alberta. Um, in incorporating this does it make them the future model only you know um applicable to that or can you generalize it to other locations as well
2: yeah that's another really good question and you can it for every flood event it has to be kind of more based off of that location now for calgary you can look at that flood event and that provides new guidelines for the future it's ever evolving guidelines because Flooding events have been increasing, as we know. Um, the obviously last few years, just in Ontario, damages have reached over eight hundred million. And with that, with those regards, historical events are helpful. However, we use those to then base guidelines on the future events in terms of protecting land or protecting homes. You know, more land use planning ideas so that we can prevent any future damages.
1: So, what's the reasons why and? Um- flooding cool for me for example I'm not Mm. from Canada so when I was reading a little bit about it, about it and they say like for example some of the biggest floats in Canada happen when the ice melt after the winter and I was wondering if there were any other um, uh, flooding causes that I may not know of because I will imagine just a river but (laughs) maybe there's more than that (laughs)
2: Yeah, so like you just said, spring runoff is a very, very big event every year. It usually does, especially in London, Ontario. That's when the Thames River kind of flows to maybe higher capacities than usually seen. Up the north there you go, you can see ice jams where ice actually gets in the way of flooding. And what it causes is higher flows in maybe one direction of the river versus another. You can kind of consider this when you have a hose and you're spraying water out, when you kind of jam it together, you can create higher flows because you're giving less area to basically for the water to escape. Mm-hmm. So ice jams is another common feature, um, hurricanes, monsoons, um, any large precipitation event will also cause um, large levels of river flooding. And another interesting one that is being seen more and more is through more through building of more homes and roadways, it's actually leaving less space for water to actually escape into the ground, so it's causing more severe flooding events for the future as well.
0: That's really interesting. So, you know, the models in your research, it sounds like it's kind of based in predicting, you know, Canadian floods. Is that correct? Or are you trying mm-hmm. to go more general with that?
2: Our research team currently, we've been looking at a national scale model just for Canada. So uh, like I said, we have the Calgary region in there. Another popular case study is New Brunswick, especially the St. John area. Um, And with that national approach, we've had to a little bit diminish the final resolution of the model where because of computers compute times, it, it acts as a disadvantage with detail. So you're left with lower resolution, which to put Um, In more simple terms, it's basically the amount of pixels that are available within a screen. So it's the amount. So if you're looking at a one kilometer by one kilometer resolution model, it's basically saying all that area in that one kilometer squared has the exact same um, height or water depth or whatever you're allocating to that model. So, yeah, we're looking at a complete national approach because like Canada has experienced some severe floods in the past 10 years. 15 years where it's quickly becoming the costliest natural disaster we're facing.
1: So how uh, I'm wondering, how did you get interested in that? Because I feel like it's a very specific topic going Mm to floodings and it's super important, but like, how did you get interested in that? How did you contact your PI in order to research floodings?
2: Mm -hmm. So we, I, we, I was also um, at Western previously, so it kind of made the transition into Western graduate life with a supervisor a little easier. And my supervisor was my year three professor for water resource engineering. And it was kind of the first year that in engineering, we were actually focused on environmental topics. And this was one of the topics that really kind of just came to my mind and what I could see doing the future. And it was another fourth year course where we actually were able to go through a case study of learning how to um, perform a hydrologic model, how to then perform a hydraulic model, and kind of understanding all the lingo and language behind it. So just a few courses in my undergrad that really kind of pushed um, my motivation towards that. And then I was just fortunate enough that my supervisor was looking for um, a master's candidate um, to just perform more future research. That's
1: super... Uh, exciting and uh with that i'm more i'm wondering which are the like the biggest limitations for your model because i guess um predicting weather is some of the most complicated tasks Mm -hmm. (laughs) like humans have right like it's very very unpredictable and i'm wondering how do you like what do you do you see are the biggest limitations of the models you're creating
2: Mm -hmm. and that That's a really good question. I'm going through, um, so the main focus for my thesis is on downscaling, where it goes back to the resolution, where you you can take a one kilometer by one kilometer resolution, where for that one kilometer squared, which is about 37 football fields put together, you have the exact same flood depth, which in reality, that's just not going to be the case, unfortunately. So my research right now is looking at how we can go from one kilometer by one kilometer, maybe down to 20 meter by 20 meters to actually be able to identify different infrastructure that's at risk. So that's one of the major limitations. Another is as a result of climate change. It's an unpredictable future. There are various global climate models that you can look at and kind of use to predict. Currently, we're not looking at global climate models just to make things a little bit more simple. And we're going up by the current guidelines that are in place. However, there have been various studies that look at future conditions. And um, one interesting one actually is Flood Factor, which is based out of Bristol. And they look at various climate studies for um, the United States as a whole, where they've identified several cities such as New Orleans to be at 99, like 99% of the infrastructure to be at risk for the long term future. So that, those, those are the two big main limitations, because when you're looking at national approach and computer times, unfortunately, you have to sacrifice something. And often it does come down to the attention to detail. Yeah, yeah
0: no, that's, that's really, really interesting. And um, to kind of base off of what Laura said and what you said, James, what are some factors that make it hard to just predict floods in general? mm-hmm
2: and and that comes down to um just the way weather weather situations can kind of work sometimes it's the, it's why they're called flash floods or flash floods they occur so quickly that it's almost impossible to predict at times you're aware you can kind of project when they're going to be seasons or when one year's spring runoff might be worse than another spring runoff you can kind of adjust or you can go on the fly with hurricane predictions where obviously when there are projections for hurricanes, you can kind of predict when the flooding might be worse in those situations. However, it's still completely random. And that's why we, that's why as a province, Ontario has several guidelines in place where homes cannot be built in um, different floods or floodplain zones. So the major one for Ontario is they go by two, they go by a 100 year model or a 250 year model and those are the um, predictions that are used for land use planning for where infrastructure can be designed. Because, yeah.
1: Because So with that, you're saying that uh, you're only able to predict very widespread floodings, mm-hmm. right? Like you won't be able to identify small areas mm-hmm. to that 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 flood, right?
2: Yeah, it's a combination of the two, really. We focus on the greater area because that's most devastation or the most economic damage that can come from it. Um, Two year floods are often studied because they're kind of used as bank full. Two year floods are considered when the river will be um, full with water. So it's the average flood depth for that. So they're, they're very common to be used in flood map studying, but to deal with land use planning, like I kind of go back to, we look at, so for example, the city of London, they have their all homes and guidelines in place for that as a 200 year, 250-year flood model, and that's because that's been an event that's actually occurred in the city of London previously and historically.
1: Mm, okay, so you do need to know like what happened before in order to predict. Yeah, Okay, yeah. excellent. Yes. And and now like when you talk about the compute the com- computational limitation, yeah. uh, how long will a, mo- a model of this take or how much computational power do you need mm. in order to predict these floodings?
2: That's a very good question. My, I, I'm, not too, I'm not too sure off the top of my head, but I've, I've read a lot of studies that say, depending on the level of detail, you could be looking at days, weeks um, with kind of the level of study. Um, and that's why downscaling is such a popular technique is because they want, at some point you have to kind of forego the time period and obtain results that are relevant because when you when you look at these studies the hydrologic modeling is fairly accurate when it computes kind of the amount of volume that will be absorbed by the flooding so you can then take that flooding or take that volume of flooding use mass conservative techniques and replicate that volume within higher um, digital elevation models um, or higher resolution digital elevation models that then will produce a a fairly more higher resolution result. Um, So it's the compute times very much vary. And it's all depends on kind of your size of study. It depends on the level of detail of your study. So there are various factors that kind of determine that.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. And, and James, you, you kind of touched on this earlier. And, you know, in predicting some floods, you may be able to kind of, influence or control you know maybe certain buildings not being able to be um, Mm -hmm. enacted or built in flood zones and these things. Um, So what do you think the ultimate goal of these predictive models are? Like obviously you're trying to predict a flood but can you see this kind of supplementing legislation or governmental kind of processes in a way?
2: Yeah yeah so every province is in charge of their own flood guidelines depending on how badly damaged the province has been in the past due to flooding kind of varies on what their guidelines and restrictions are. I know Quebec very recently actually have produced their own set of flood maps where it's an interactive flood model online and they declared that within this flood model, I believe it's a 100 year or a 250 year flood model similar to Ontario's guidelines, and they've said that any infrastructure that resides in their flood model where they believe flooding can occur that infrastructure cannot be changed. It cannot be, if someone wants to fix their property and it's basically, it's rendered a lot of properties actually, um, the cost of properties has dropped in those areas as a result of it. And this is what provinces are now looking at is how can we protect as much infrastructure as possible from flooding events. And if you just go down the river Thames towards downtown London, you can see they've started a new project where they're building a seawall to kind of protect the Warncliffe Road side um, of Old London. It's, again, another popular area the, um, where Western students live, where Western families reside, just next to downtown. It's been an area that's been hit poorly. So they're trying to improve infrastructure there to kind of protect more homes.
1: I'm sorry, this is a question that I should have asked before. Are you like research doing some specific research or this is just more like historical, <laughs>
2: yeah, like yeah. how does it work? Yeah, yeah, no, that's perfectly fine. Um, so my research specifically, like I said, focuses on the downscaling techniques. So we're looking at how we can go from a low resolution, one kilometer by one kilometer flood map to a higher resolution. So currently we're looking at 20 by 20 meters, 100 by 100 meters, and that's the main focus. And you can look at statistical techniques, you can look at physical techniques that all allow you to have a better understanding of what infrastructure will be more at risk versus other infrastructure that might not be as much at risk.
1: I get it, so what, what are some of the results that you have gotten so far? Have you been able to um, downscale these models yet? Yeah,
2: yeah. so I actually, um, the other week, I had my first successful batch of results through a MATLAB code um, and this code focused on looking for um, overtopping in the model. So it took your 20 by 20 or a meter DEM model, which is just your elevation. And it basically just shows for every 20 meter by 20 meter cell that you have, what that elevation is. And depending on the areas where your surface water level is greater than that elevation, it subtracts that surface water level from the fine resolution Um, elevation and it produces a new model at a 20 by 20 meter um, right. And it all depends on what your input is for your digital elevation model in this situation. And there are a few limitations with it that result in you're going from too much of a difference between the coarse grid model to the high fine resolution model. So these are all the little bits of information that we're looking at right now.
1: So for dummies, will you guide us through what you do, like, let's say, in your day-to-day research? Like, yeah. you, you're only in front of the lab, of the computer in your lab, um, feeding models in MATLAB. So what do you yeah. put on those models, and what do they give you? Uh, they will give you, like, a graph where you yeah. will say, this is a probability of floating. This is high areas, low areas. Uh, what, yeah. what do you get out of your models, more no, exactly? That's a-
2: Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So we kind of use two, there are two main softwares that I've been incorporating a little bit more recently and it's ArcMap as well as MATLAB. So I start off usually in ArcMap and that's where I perform a lot of my pre-processing techniques where I'm getting all the inputs kind of ready for the introduction to MATLAB. So this focuses on looking at the digital elevation model, if I need to crop it, if I need to mask anything Um, I then look at my channel model. I have my um, flood model as well. Once all those steps are done, I will then take it into MATLAB. And there are a few codes that are available through, um, I believe it's a list flood documentary, which it's a list is just a group of um, researchers from Bristol University, um, one of the major schools for flood modeling. And it's a code that then sets up the inputs into a subgrid plot which just allows a specific location to be given for a water level. Um, Once this is done, I'll run the code through on MATLAB and then I'll export it back to ArcMap to look at um, and explore the results, see if there are any issues. And the main results we're looking at right now are water depth. So we're trying to discover what water depth is in every given area. Um, Another common result for flood models is um, flood flow. Unfortunately, right now, we're just focusing our, our efforts on flood depth.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's very impressive. I used MATLAB once in my student career, and it, it didn't go so hot. So yeah. I, I commend you for that. So, James, what is the next steps for you and your research? Uh, like, where are you at in your studies?
2: I'm currently kind of between a mix of methodologies and results, hoping to have all kind of my results gathered and kind of ready for validation soon. I have a few techniques that I have to try and obviously fix the few limitations I was kind of discussing with over the one methodology. Um, just a few basic techniques such as bilinear interpolation and smoothing, as well as identifying any anomalies that occur in the data. There are a few other case studies that we also want to complete to, to really see the difference in um, downscaling within a large um, kind of case study area such as New Brunswick versus a smaller case study area such as Calgary. And then it's really just validating the results and proving proving that the techniques are accurate, proving the techniques are useful to um, the studies.
1: But how do you validate? Will you like, will you Mm say, like, do you want floodings occurring?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I know that that's that's one technique. And it's, um, I believe it's called a HIT um, model where you look at previous models that are similar, that are similar um, flood frequencies to the current flood frequency you're just focusing on. So, again, all our, our efforts are in a 100 year model and a 200 year model. So, we can then use um, data that has been done by people who are actually on the ground, kind of ground studies where they've pinned posts along the ground in terms of the level of flooding, how far it goes back. And you can compare those models to the real life models, as well as another big one is um, the downscaling models have to be mass conservative, where you can't have an increase in a flood volume after your downscaling is done, because where is this flood volume coming from, right? We're not increasing any rainfall, we're not increasing any flooding from any area. So those are a few main techniques for validation. And there will be a few other ones that I'll discover over the period of time. But it's really just to prove that your research is up to date, that it's accurate, and that it's um, reliable for further use.
1: And what happens if it's not? <laughs> I mean, I hope they are yeah. right. But like yeah. models are informed by data, and like uh, whether it's so random that anything could occur. So what happens yeah. in case that your models are not good enough to predict the reality.
2: Yeah, and that's, that's why um, currently there's so many flood models available and there's so many research teams that are working effortlessly to kind of discover what maybe climate models to use, what inputs, what specific inputs to use and what techniques. And there are just a few, there are three or four downscaling techniques that are commonly used that all kind of resort to different inputting of information. Um, so there's another um, methodology that we're currently looking into and exploring the possibilities of its, um, of its effectiveness and whether it's um, kind of just um, useful for our research area and whether it's useful for the research we're kind of hoping to get from.
1: So what do you do if it gets wrong is that you try a different one.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you you can try a different one. We can, we can look at why it's wrong. That's a, that's a common thing um, to look at too. And that that's my studies right now is there is a bit of data that's anomalies in my results in my first batch of results for Calgary that I got or that I have. And we're looking right now into how can we limit those anomalies? How can we go about fixing them and adjusting them? And one simple way is, taking a maximum water height where we're we're putting into the MATLAB um, program that we don't want a water level above a maximum of let's say four meters because we know that's not realistic so anywhere where it's not above four meters we can use a bilinear interpolation technique to kind of smooth the um, flood model and kind of take out those anomalies
0: yeah no that's that's awesome. And before we end off here, uh, I just wanted to know about the case studies you said you were incorporating, and those sounded really interesting. So, how do you choose these case studies and then incorporate them? Like, how do you mm-hmm. how do you determine, you know, which floods, I guess, to use mm-hmm. as examples?
2: So, with with regards to which floods we want to use, it's it's mainly you you, when you produce the 100 year flood model it's it's the same for every area every year has or every case study area will have a designed 100 year flood model now it might vary from department to department based on their inputs um so that that is all kind of similar per case study and with really which case study or which locations are best we're really looking at areas that have been hit hard by flooding in the past I think Calgary has been hit by this. I think I believe it's the second um, most costliest natural disaster in Canadian history. So it it to to us it's a no brainer for that. I believe it was six billion back in 2013. So that's a very very or a very common area to look at for flooding. And New Brunswick is another where they've been hit in the past by ice jams by um, river or by um, spring runoff by hurricanes that kind of creep up their way up north a little bit more. So with with so much of their land base also on the ocean, that they're affected by coastal sea level rising, that was another um, option to kind of look at how coastal sea level rising kind of also impacts river flooding.
1: So I'll have like a just a small quick question yeah. just to end. Uh, how, how much do you expect your models to change when you introduce the fact of climate change? Do you expect them to go off all over the place or you expect them to follow kind of the same path?
2: Yeah, we, we kind of expect them to increase off more um, with climate change. It's warming up oceans, so it's obviously leading to more deadly um, storm effects or hurricanes are more able to creep up north because that water surface um, temperature is increasing. Um, it's also creating more random storms. So it's creating more um, higher precipitation events, but it's also leading to more drought. So it's kind of the combination two that we're trying to adjust and look at. And that's where things do get a little bit more complicated when it comes to limitations because why is one global climate model used more frequently than another? Um, are all good questions and good limitations for further models, um, which kind of makes it tougher to predict. But also, um, it's very interesting because it's all going to be very relevant for the long-term future.
0: Well, thank you, James. That was very, very interesting, as well as informative and really important research to, you know, just supplement and inform the safety of of a lot of people and and structures in the future.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Francesco Colosimo, and my co-host was Laura Baena. We've been speaking with James Braden, and this episode was also produced by Laura Baena. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website, gradcast.ca, or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening, and have a great night.